Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Pinchas, or Phineas. The address is Bamidbar, Numbers, chapter 25, verse 10, through chapter 30, verse 1, or in your English versions, it runs through chapter 29, verse 40. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July the 3rd of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher bahar banu mekol ha'amim, venatan lenu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah, amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, before we get started, I want to say a few things about the podcast today. Um, first of all, I want to apologize for the lateness of the podcast. Um, it is, again, my um, aim to publish and uh, email or mail out the podcast earlier in the week so that you're able to study the the portion and the uh, contents into the Sabbath. But as um, events would have it, sometimes um, uh, my work schedule or my weekly schedule, my other responsibilities, interfere. So I do apologize, uh, but we are getting it out on Sabbath, so better late than never. Also, I'd like to mention that um, my good friend Ryan, Ryan Kingsley, the one who puts out the, uh, the, the music for the podcasts, he wanted to let me know that, uh, or he wanted to let you all know, by way of uh, of me, of course, Ryan doesn't really speak on the podcast, I do all the speaking for him. He wanted to let you all know of a new website that he has. It's at www.kadoshlaadonai.com. That's spelled K-A-D-O-S-H-L-A-D-O-N-A-I.com. And Kadosh Adonai is going to be the website for his music, if you'd like to um, click on that or go to that website. And uh, it should go live. Let me see. I believe it should be... I, I believe. Let me just check it out right now. I'm sitting in front of my computer. You can listen to a sample, and it says, We hope to have the site operational by July 14th. So that would be next week. So um, you're getting a sneak preview, I guess, of his uh, where you can uh, end up finding his music. Traditionally, I've told people that if they want to contact Ryan, simply to send me an email. 
uh, at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. Um, but Ryan's just going to make his music um, available to anyone who'd like to get it or has questions about his music, I should say. I don't know how how what what uh, uh, availability scheme he's going to use, whether you can download it right there or send him an email and talk to him about it, things like that. But at any rate... I'd let you know, like to let you know about his website, uh, uh, which is really the name of his band, Kadosh La Adonai, which means in Hebrew, "Holy unto the Lord" or "Holy to the Lord," as as he would uh, translate it. So, um, just thought I'd put that bug in your ear um, in case you'd like the techno music that I've been using for my shows. Okay, let's move on to my parasha. We were introduced to this man Pinkas. Uh, in last week's parasha, if you remember, Pinchas shows up at the very end in chapter 25 of of, of um, the book of Numbers. The people are playing the uh, part of the whore, which is not a good place to find yourselves in in front of an angry God. Of course, Bilam the prophet, who was hired by Balak the king of Moab, could not gar- curse the people, and so instead he counseled the people um, to, uh, as it were, follow after their baser nature, which in this case was idolatry, um, something that they had been, uh, familiar with, especially from, um, the days of Egypt and the incident with the golden calf and such. In fact, this kind of mirrors the incident with the golden calf. At any rate, Hashem was going to judge them, and we, we we're going to find out that 24,000 people die in a plague, but not before Pinchas the son of Eletzar, the son of Aharon, the Kohen, got up and went into the tent of an Israelite man and a foreign woman, and he put a spear through the both of them. And they were doing something inappropriate. And we're going to find out about that today in this Torah portion. So Pinchas shows up at the end of the Torah portion of last week, and thus he is the um, opening topic for this week's Torah portion. Now Pinchas was a priest, and as such... He was a man of holiness. It's not just that he was a man of holiness, therefore he was a priest. Rather, um, and I think the Talmud seems to allude to this, Pinchas was a zealous man. In fact, he was a man who had the heart of God uh, in such a way that he was zealous after God's zealousness. And I believe that's the term that's used in the Talmud. Pinchas had a... a, a, um, a righteousness about him that caused him to see things the way God saw them. And um, he was the grandson of Aharon, Moshe's late brother. He was direct family, as it were. And we have to ask ourselves, what was going through his mind as he watched the recent turn of events surrounding the people of Baal Poor, where they were playing the harlotry, tree, where they were engaged in this um, this this idolatry, this orgy, this 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 forbidden event where forbidden unions were taking place, forbidden uh, uh, sexual unions, I should say, uh, forbidden foods were being partaken of, and it was just a big uh, religious festival that God did not sanction. And if you want to get a God upset, then just mess with worship, okay? Um, that's one sure way to, to, to get on God's bad side. Now we have to imagine that Pinchas, uh, growing up in a family such as his, uh, you know, during his childhood, he was given the opportunity, as I say, to soak up holiness. You know what? It, you know what it's like when you grow up in a family when you're the preacher's kid, the PKs. Those of you listening to my podcast, I had a friend uh, when I was growing up. Um, <clears throat> I went to a Christian school, a Baptist school, and uh, one of my best friends was the preacher's kid, the PK, and he would he would kind of you know relate to me what it's like being the child of a preacher's family where. 
your your standard of living is expected to be so much higher because everyone is looking at you because of your father or because of your mother and because of the ministries that God has called them into. There is that expectation where people ex- you know kind of anticipate that you are going to be a holier person than your average person, as it were. And so we can kind of get this concept from Pincus as well, growing up in a priestly family. Soaking up holiness does not necessarily mean that the person is going to become the holy person uh, that their parents are. However, it's always nice when they do. And in the case of Pincus, we say that he did. Consistently, day in and day out, he was given a glimpse into the supernatural world of the awesome blessings of the God of all humanity. Here he is, day in and day out, able to um, probably talk with his parents about um, what it's like to serve in the uh, in the tabernacle and to minister before the Lord and uh, to be that close to the holiness of God. The Holy One had indeed delivered the people from Egypt, all of them. He delivered all of them. He delivered them from the clutches of slavery and bondage to themselves, never again to return, I might add. However, we have to ask ourselves, how then... Could uh, the people just fall into this idolatrous practice time and time again? God had set them free, and God had promised that he was going to take them into a, a goodly land, a spacious land, a land where he would be their God and they would be his people. Never again would they have to serve the gods of Egypt. However, once they were out in the desert, maybe they weren't serving the gods of Egypt, but they sure were participating in all the other gods of the surrounding country, uh, the surrounding people groups. And this God would simply not have any part of. And then we know why Pincus, growing up the way he did, he could not sit back and watch this blatant act of rebellion against the Torah of Hashem and not burn with what I like to call righteous indignation on the inside. He couldn't do it. He was a man of holiness. And so what did he do? Did he sit back? Did he go to the, God? Did he go to the leaders? Did he go to God? Did he ask what he should do? No. In kind of vigilante form, he took action. And we read about this in the text. His spear became his instrument of justice. And um, he wasn't really opposing God. Remember, God was killing the people. The plague had started. And God was slaying people. And it wasn't really that Pincus was upset because of what God was doing. Rather, Pincus saw to the heart of the matter, and he saw that the root cause was Israel's disobedience and blatant idolatry. And and we have this man in the um, beginning of chapter 25 who just who just boldly walks up. The Torah even describes it, it says, in the sight of Moshe and the whole community of Israel. He's not even hiding his sin. He has no shame. This man of Israel, who we're going to find out later on his name, um, and the name of the person that was with him. Um, but he, he, he walks right in, um, into his tent, he got. He, he goes. Let me just read it. I'm trying to paraphrase. Chapter 25, verse 6. Just then, in the sight of Moshe and the whole community of Israel, as they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting, um, a man from Israel came by, bringing to his family a woman from Midian. Okay, here's the foreign woman. And again, there's nothing wrong with being a foreigner. What we're what we're understanding is that quite typically in the days of the Tanakh, foreigners represented a, a religious threat to the people of Israel. Foreigner, the name, um, usually associated with someone of pagan extraction, someone who had not joined themselves covenantally to God and to his Torah. And so foreigners usually represented a threat. And we're not that's not to say that foreigners were always going to be a threat to Israel. In fact, um, if you fast forward to the apostolic scriptures, one day the foreigners will be brought into Israel en masse. 
But for now, foreigners typically spell disaster for Israel. So we have this woman from Midian, and she and this man from Israel come uh, into the community rather brazenly, rather boldly. Uh, and when Pinchas sees this, he gets up, and that's when he takes action. And so um, he is going to uh, stop the reason for the plague. So he he uh, uh, he takes his spear in his hand. And with this righteous indignation on the inside, you could say that um, he's filled with God's um, with God's jealousy. And uh, I think it's Pastor Ernie who introduced me to this phrase. He had a moment of the Holy Spirit, or or something to that effect. I call it a moment of the Ruach Hakodesh, where the Spirit just just blazed up within him for that brief moment. And uh, what did he do? He stepped boldly into the office that was his. He interceded on the Lord's behalf by stopping the plague, which was sure to consume the people in Hashem's fury. And um, again, he 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 put an end to this this. Uh, outrageous display of rebellion against God's ways and against God's words. And so for this, Adonai rewarded him with a blessing. Let's read that blessing. It shows up in uh, chapter 25, verses 12 and 13. Let me just read this verse, okay? Quote, I am giving him my covenant of shalom, making him a covenant with him and his descendants after him, that the office of Cohen will be theirs forever. This is because he was zealous on behalf of his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. End quote. That's, again, Numbers 25, verse 12 and 13. He was zealous for God. Are, are you zealous for God? Do you just sit back while things go bad all around you, while, while people blatantly uh, disobey and disregard God's ways? Or do you burn with righteous indignation on the inside? I'm not saying that everybody should be a vigilante. We have to be very, very careful. Uh, the Talmud even goes on to say, I believe it's in Tractate um, Sanhedrin, where I'm finding this information. Um, uh, the, the Talmud mentions how that um, uh, Pinchas was hearing from Hashem. He was he was walking a dangerous um, road, to be sure, when he took matters into his own own hands. He was either going to be vindicated by God for doing what he did, or he was going to become a murderer because he killed two people. And so he, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he had to be absolutely sure that what he was doing was the right thing. That's the challenge uh, before us. It's not wrong to burn with righteous indignation, but we have to be very careful of the actions that follow. So the challenge is there. We do need to be zealous for God, but we need to be careful when it comes to taking matters into our own hands like Pinchas did here. Okay, Let's read on about this man, Pinchas, and um, see if we can look to the, the Chazal, the sages of antiquity, and see if they can give us an inside peek into some more of the... Uh, uh, of what was surrounding uh, the events and what was motivating Pinkus to do what he did, and um, um, I just like to supply this information for you. All right, this next section is entitled "A Zealot Among Them." Of course, we all would like to be like Pinkus, where we step in and do God's will, but we have to again realize that um, it's a dangerous place to be if we're not absolutely sure that the actions that we're taking are being driven by the Spirit within us. So. We really need to stop and examine this. What is the source of Pinchas' righteous indignation? And what is meant by the covenant of peace that Hashem grants to him? Now, obviously, God vindicates his actions in this particular Torah portion. But we live in a day and age where 
We cannot be absolutely sure at all times that we're doing exactly what God asks us to do. Even those who are spirit-filled experience a certain measure of uncertainty when it comes to doing what God asks us to do. It's very difficult these days um, with with this um, with the way that God has, has has decided to speak to us and through us. Um, some people might call it a um, a dispensation where God doesn't speak to us the way that He spoke to us in the days of the Tanakh. I'm not so sure that that word dispensation is not the wrong usage at this time. However. We do need to be zealous for God. We do need to have within us that same um, passion for righteousness. And so, what was the source of Pincus' righteous indignation? Well, these Sha'elot, these Torah questions, have puzzled even the most brilliant of sages down through the, uh, uh, the pages of time. And so, we're going to turn to them. People like Ibn Ezra, Abravanel, Rambam, etc., these people have, have wrestled, wrestled with this question. And so it's worth looking into a few possible answers. After all, as I'm fond of um, challenging my students, reminding them, I should say, the sages were in possession of these scriptures long before the Christians came and got a hold of them. That doesn't mean that the sages have all the right answers. It means that it's worth looking into their notes and seeing what insights they came up with before the Christian church got a hold of them. Besides, it's a, it's a sad legacy that many within the Christian church are not even familiar enough with the Torah and its stories to come up with any plausible solution to the dilemmas that we find. And so, again, if you're wanting, wanting to get a greater insight into the Torah and the prophets and the writings, um, sometimes you, the only choice you have is to turn to the writings of the sages. So, uh, let's see. Let's, it's... it's, it's um, worth looking into, and I can assure you that the candidates, <laughs> as far as the answers that we're going to be looking at, are quite interesting. Now let's start with the ancient Midrashim, the homiletic stories um, that have been preserved for us. And I, I like to say that they bring out a most fascinating detail in regards to this Pasuk, to this verse in chapter 25.11. So let's start with this Pasuk, with this verse, and move from there, alright? The verse reads, quote, Pinchas, son of Elitzar, son of Aharon the Kohen. Simple enough verse. Let's start with Rabbi Moshe Bogomilsky of Sichos in English. Um, he's actually a rather recent rabbi. He's not uh, one of the ancient sages. But he's going to give us our selection of She'elot Utshuvot, questions and answers. Okay, I'm going to let him supply the questions and answers and then um, see where that leads us. Okay, First question. Our sages write in the Gemara that Pinchas ze Eliyahu. Pinchas is Eliyahu, that's what the Hebrew phrase, Pinchas ze Eliyahu. Since Eliyahu lived generations after Pinchas, shouldn't the saying have been, Eliyahu is Pinchas, or Eliyahu ze, uh, ze Pinchas? Do you guys understand my question? In other words, in the Gemara, which is the um, commentary to the uh, Mishnah, uh, the two comprise the Talmud, Mishnah and Gemara. The Gemara writes that Pinchas is, is Elijah. All right, which again is anachronistic because Elijah lived after after Pinchas, but the sages are trying to hint at something, and we're going to look at that in a moment when they say that Pinchas is um, Elijah. Well, here's the answer, the first answer to their question. Eliyahu was one of the angels whom Hashem consulted when he said, Naase Adam, which means let us create man in Genesis 1.26. Remember, in the the rabbis wrestle. Let me just pause. The rabbis wrestle with the uh, fact that Hashem speaks in the plural when He says, "Let us make man." Of course, we we who understand the um, 
and espouse to the inner nature of Hashem and his oneness with Yeshua understand the phrase let us make man but those who do not espouse to any such triunity um, which is the bulk of mainstream Judaism would see in this phrase let us make man some other explanation and quite often they say that this is God and the angels creating man together of course I do not espouse that view but I need to use this information because it shows up in the Talmud right now to further our Midrash along so they say, let us create men. And they imagine that Eliyahu, who was the greatest of the prophets, Elijah, uh, next to Isaiah and such. Uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah is, is the premier prophet, and Eliyahu is also one of the greater uh, prophets. They use him quite often in their Midrashic stories. Elijah shows up from time to time in the Midrashim. And so Elijah, in this particular case, is showing up as one of the Malachim, one of the angels, of whom Hashem consulted when he says, Na'ase Adam, let us create men. Afterwards, the angel, in this answer, came to this mundane world clothed in the body of Pinchas and lived over 500 years to become the famous prophet Eliyahu. Consequently, Eliyahu preceded Pinchas by many years. Now again, don't take this story literally. The, the Midrashim is not meant to be taken as Peshat. I, I, I can hear people objecting right now. No wonder the ancient rabbis rejected Yeshua. No wonder the ancient rabbis were filled with um, confusion because they're coming up with stories like like one of the angels helped create man and not only that one of the angels turns out to be Elijah who then becomes the person of Pinchas who then becomes Elijah again alright again it's a midrachic story uh, created to teach a lesson and we're going to get into the lesson here in a moment um, they didn't really believe this factually it was a midrash it's an, it's an allegory okay you know, it's it's like some Christians today read the story of um the the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and realize that it's a make believe story. It's make believe, but it's got biblical lessons that are put in there by C.S. Lewis. Everyone knows when they read the story that it's a fictional story, and yet I've heard preachers over and over refer to the story, the stories of C.S. Lewis, um, in their preaching sermons, uh, to bring out the lessons that C.S. Lewis preserved for this for us in the stories. Same concept. Are you following along with me? So don't be too harsh. Okay. Uh, they go on to say in their answer, Alternately, when Pinchas killed Zimri, now Zimri was the, um, uh, um, the, the, the Israelite man. I'm sorry. I didn't tell you his name. If you go on in chapter 25 at verse 14, it says, The name of the man from Israel who was killed, put to death with the woman from Midian, was Zimri, the son of Salu, leader of one of the clans from the tribe of Shimon. And it goes on to say in verse 15 that the name of the woman from Midian who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Tzur, and he was head of the people in one of the clans of Midian. So, we find out that these two people are very important people. It was not just some unknown man and some unknown woman. When Pinchas killed Zimri, he also expired himself. At that time, however, he reached a spiritual level that merited him the name Eliyahu. A name is a life force, and you can see the Tanya at Sha'ar Hayyhud number one. Um, so he merits the name Eliyahu through which he was enabled to return to Earth. Now again. This sounds all far-fetched, especially those of you who are not familiar with the rabbinic midrashim. They don't all read this way, but sometimes they get rather fanciful. Again, no more fanciful than a talking lion. Okay? Lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. So, uh, cut me some slack here. 
Uh, he continued, however, to be called by the name Pinchas, although in reality, uh, Pinchas is Elijah, the person Pinchas, uh, Pinchas de Eliyahu. The person called Pinchas now had the life force of Eliyahu. Incidentally, according to the above, it is understood why the Torah never identifies his father and his mother. He's never mentioned as Eliyahu, son of so-and-so, but known by the title Navi, now talking about Elijah. He's not called Elijah, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. What they say is, he's simply called Eliyahu HaNavi, or Eli- Eliyahu HaTishbi, or Eliyahu HaGladi, the Eliyahu of, of Gilead. Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite, or Eli- Elijah of Gilead. That's their point. Pinchas, they go on to say, performed um, an extremely violent and forceful act. So much so, that the other tribes accused him of murder. Now, this is an interesting story that we're going to pick up here in the Midrash, um, because not everyone can understand the, the the actions of a zealot. Why do zealots do what they do? Why do they step into the role and, and play the function that they do? What is motivating them to do what they do? People around them, people in their family, people, their friends, their... their, their, their um, their uh, companions. They can't always understand why zealots act the way they do. Okay? So, um, according to the Midrash, the other tribes accused him of murder. Now, Rashi quotes the Midrash. Um, and Rashi's uh, quote reads, Shehayu hashvatim meraninim. Let me try that again. It's written in Hebrew. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm stumbling over it. Uh, let's read it here. Shehayu Ha Shavatim Meranim Aharav Haretem et Ben Putize Shepitem Avi Avi Aviv Agalim La Avodazara Harag Nasi Shavet Beyusrael. Okay. Rashi's quote in English is quote, The other tribes were talking about Pinchas. Did you see the son of Puti of Yitro? His grandfather used to fatten calves for idol worship. That is why he found him found within himself the capacity to kill a prince of one of the tribes of Israel. Now, um, uh, let me just explain this quote. The other tribes were talking about Pincus. Now, according to the Midrash, um, this son of Yitro, Yitro, Jethro, Jethro was Moshe's father. Okay. Now we already know that. Um, that Pinchas is related to Moshe because he's Aharon's grandson. So to call him his father is is to say he's related to him. Did you see the son of Jethro, uh, of Yitro of Jethro Puti? That's why it said Haretim et Ben Butizeh. Um, his grandfather used to fatten calves for idol worship. Whose grandfather? Well, Pinchas' grandfather. Because if you remember, Jethro was not of Israel stock, Israelite stock. Jethro was a Midianite. Jethro was was not from the tribes of Israel. He he was a desert dweller that Moshe had, had um ended up marrying Zipporah. You know, it was Jethro's uh, daughter. And so um because he's outside of Israelite clanship, then uh the, the Midrash identifies him as an idol worshipper. And so what did he do? He slaughters calves. He he fattens calves he, he for idol worship. And so he's used to slaughter. He's used to seeing this. And that's why they say that that uh, Pinchas had within him the capacity, or he found within him the ability to kill a prince of one of the tribes of Israel. Otherwise, think about it. Pinchas is jealous for God, but yet look what look what's 
look what stands before him. He's going to go into the tent and he's going to assess the situation. Here's a prince of Egypt and he's going to kill him? Even though the prince of Egypt, this, this, this man, uh, Zimri, even though he was committing sin against God, he's still a prince of Egypt. I mean, uh, that's the fact. Okay, and so for for Pinchas to work up the chutzpah, as it were, within him, to to slay a prince of Egypt, that's why they have to ask themselves: Did he just like throw away all reason and say it doesn't matter who it is? What if it was Moshe? What if Pinchas saw Moshe doing something wrong? Do you think Pinchas has the right to say, "Well, he's doing something wrong. I better go kill him too"? So we've got to understand the limits to this zealotry, to this to this um, this righteous indignation. You know, let me let me let me see if I can give you an example, and um, maybe it'll make more sense to you. Let's say, at the congregation where I attend, which is Kehilatu Nova in Thornton, Colorado, let's say I see Pastor Mark McClellan doing something grossly wrong according to the Torah. Do I have the right to simply go in without a without due process and put him to death? Do I have that right? Most people listening to pod, my podcast would say, "No, Ariel, you can't do that." You can't take matters into your own hands. You have to you have to um, expose the sin and 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 then allow due process to um, bring Mark to trial, as it were, so that he can have a chance to explain his side of the story, have his chance to um, uh, um, d- be defended or defend himself, as it were. And so that's why we have to ask ourselves. You know, Pinkas did what was right, and we all cheer, "Yay, Pinkas, you stopped the plague." But we also have to get real. <laughs> and that's what the Midrash is trying to get us to see. Um, how is it that he had within him the ability to do what he did? What was driving and motivating him? Well, the Chazal continued to speculate. All right, question, second question. <clears throat> In the Torah, the name Pinchas is written with a Yud. All right? And according to the Zohar at, at 237b, Pinchas with a Yod has a numerical value of 208, as does the name of the patriarch Yitzhak. What is the connection between Pinchas and Yitzhak? Now let me pause. Gematria, according to the, um, the, the, the Kabbalist and according to the Zohar, Gematria is where you count the numerical value of, of certain names or places or Hebrew terms. And when you find a similar Hebrew term that has the same number, same numerical value, then the, the Gematria likes to see a connection between the two. For instance, there's a little bit of... <clears throat> Gematria going on in the Bashat of the Torah whenever we find the, the number seven. You know, we find like seven um, festivals, and then we find seven, um, let's see, like seven days in a, in a festival, or we find the seventh day is the Shabbat, or we find that, you remember in Jericho, how they marched around the city seven times, uh, and then on the seventh day, um, you know, they marched around it one day, once every day, for seven days, and then on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. So, what we find, kind of at the Peshat level, is this gematria going on, where we focus on the numbers, and we draw correlations between the, the numbers themselves. It's no secret, every Christian knows this, that God utilizes numbers to teach um, hidden truths, as it were, in the Torah. Not in a mystical sense, but 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 in a less than... Um, uh, how do I say, in a less than obvious way. Sometimes we have to kind of read into the text to figure out what God is trying to hint at. And so that's what the Gematria concerns itself with. So they take the um, the name Pinchas. Let me just pull up um, the Hebrew here for you. All right. Here we are. 
Um, Pinchas is spelled Pe Yud Nun Chet Samech. Okay, and um, so it's written with a Yud, and that's what they're trying to say in the Torah. The name Pinchas is written with a Yod, and according to the Zohar, Pinchas with a Yod has a numerical value of two hundred and eight, as does Itach. And so then they try to ask themselves: Is there a connection between the number two hundred and eight between the two names? Now here's their answer. The prophet Eliyahu encountered the false prophets of the idol Baal and challenged them to prove whose god was the true god. You remember the story with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It was agreed that he and they would each prepare an offering and the one whose offering would be consumed by a fire descending from heaven would be the representative of the authentic god. You remember the story. All their attempts to bring down fire were to no avail. When Eliyahu prayed, Aneni Hashem Aneni, Please, God, answer me. After he prayed this prayer, a fire descended from heaven. You can read 1 Kings 18, verse 19 through verse 40 for that story. Now, what does that have to do with Itzhak? Well, according to the Gemara at uh, Masechet Brachot 26b, the three prayers of the day, we have three prayers that are prayed, three times that we pray in, 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 Judea, uh, in, in, Hebrew, in Jewish circles today. We have morning prayers, which are called Shacharit, Mincha prayers, which are in the afternoon, and then the evening prayers, which are called Ma'ariv. Now, according to, um, according to Jewish legend, uh, these three prayers were originated by the patriarchs. Okay, We have Avraham praying or instituting the Shacharit time in the morning. Itzach instituting the Mincha prayers and Yaakov instituting the Ma'avriv prayers, okay? And the Gemara also at Brachot 26, or I'm sorry, at Brachot 6b says that one should be very careful when praying the Mincha service. Why? Since during the incident in 1 Kings, Eliyahu's prayers were answered during the afternoon prayer of Mincha, Okay? Now they're just again they're <laughs> they're trying to teach their people a lesson. God actually is able to answer prayer at any time, but it's interesting to notice um, when God does the things that He does. In fact, if you do a study of the times that God was answering their prayers, you're going to find that the Mincha prayer time is a very interesting time, right up into the Apostolic Scriptures. I might challenge you. Okay, maybe that's for another study. So, going on with this Midrash about Eliyahu and about um, Pinchas and about Ithak. Consequently, Pinchas' name is written with a Yud, indicating the parallel between him and Ithak, alluding to the fact that Pinchas, who is Eliyahu, according to the Midrash, would be answered in his confrontation with the false prophets when he would recite Ithak's prayer at Mincha. So that's the point they're trying to make. Now, again... Um, they're just trying to simply say that God is a powerful God. You've heard the old saying, be careful what you ask for. Well, Eliyahu prayed to God to answer his prayer so that, in fact, he didn't just pray and expect God to answer his prayer, although he could have. He was a genuine prophet of God. But what did he say? Anania Adonai Aneni. Please, God, answer me. Please, answer my prayer. It was during Minka. Now, again, I don't think that um, Eliyahu was attributing any magical um, quality to the Minka prayer time itself, any more than we should do ourselves. If you pray Shacharit, great. If you pray Minka, great. If you pray Ma'ariv, great. God is able and ready to answer your prayers whenever. 
However, we do not know exactly what motivates people in the Tanakh to pray when they pray and to pray the way that they prayed. Perhaps God does at times say, Seek me at this time, come to me at this time, approach me at this time, and I will meet with you. That is entirely um, plausible that God would have um, people pray at certain times because God is going to demonstrate his holiness during a special time. We do also know that God has, um, through the prophets and indeed through Yeshua, told people to wait for a specific time to meet him. Um, I'm reminded of the time in the book of Acts when Yeshua told his Talmudim to wait for him for ten more days because it was on the fortieth day Yeshua was ascending and in ten more days, which would be the fiftieth day of Shavuot, Hashem was going to pour out his outpoured spirit, his Holy Spirit, uh, to the Talmudim there in Jerusalem. And so, if the people, if the Talmudim did not take Yeshua's instructions literally and on the tenth day expect something unique to happen, then they would have missed the valuable object lesson and indeed they would have missed the outpouring of the Spirit because they would not have been there when God showed up. We're talking about divine appointments. And so that's what the sages are trying to hint at in this didactic lesson that they're teaching us. Um, again, while attempting to teach us a lesson, nevertheless, uh, their answers are somewhat fanciful. You know, Pinchas is Eliyahu. Pinchas is Elijah. We don't believe in reincarnation. But we do understand the lessons that they're trying to give to us. I personally like the answer given by a modern scholar by the name of Rabbi Zalman Baruch Melamed of Beit El um, Yeshiva. This is in Israel, yeshiva.org.il. Let me use his answer, um, and then we'll close this section and call it part A, okay? Quote, One's intellect is the source of his moral character and personality. Only after one appreciates that which is good and is truly good does he begin to yearn for it and as a result act towards achieving that end. Human intellect is beyond emotion. In fact, it actually guides and even directs emotion. Now, let me pause and just say this. If you're struggling with the right feelings towards that which is good, let me just give you like an example. I, I talk to people about this topic over and over again. People who are beginning to walk into the ways of the Torah. People who were not raised with this uh, understanding. Typically people that I'm describing come from a Christian background. I believe it is the proper thing for all of God's children to embrace his ways to include the Sabbath. But what often happens is that people aren't motivated to do that which is right. In other words, they tell me, Ariel... I don't feel like I should be keeping the Sabbath. Perhaps God can, can motivate me to keep the Sabbath. Perhaps God can put within me the right heart so that I can begin to walk into his ways. If God will, will motivate me to do what is right, then perhaps then I will do it. You know what my answer is to them? It's just like what this rabbi said. Human intellect is beyond emotion. Human intellect guides and even directs emotion. My answer is this. Don't wait for God to put within you the feeling to do it. Just do it because it's the right thing to do. And you know what? Your feelings will follow. If we waited for the feelings to do the right things at every time, what a sad world we live in because so many people would not be doing the right thing. The right thing would not get done because people would not be motivated to do the right thing. They would not feel like doing what was right. You know what I mean? 
We have got to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Walking into God's ways is the right thing to do because it is the right thing. We don't need to conjure up the feelings to do the right thing. Quite often, I don't feel like doing the right thing, but the right thing needs to be done because it's the right thing. It's that old maxim. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Let's keep reading from this rabbi. An act of jealousy on behalf of God, however, does not stem from the intellect. Now, here's his challenge. Man possesses a quality even higher than the intellect. It exists on the, on the subconscious level in the depths of one's spirit. It constantly strives to reveal itself and to appear via the intellect and the emotion. The role of intellect and emotion is to neutralize those factors that block the manifestation of zealotry. This model is used by Rabbi Avraham Itzhak Kuk of Blessed Memory to explain the phenomenon of emunah, or faith. It's, he stresses that emunah exists on a plane above and beyond intellect and emotion. The Rabbi Zalman goes on to say, It is from these depths that jealousy must spring. This jealousy, or zealotry, reveals itself once one puts aside all factors that inhibit the manifestation of this inner cleaving to the creator of the universe. This zealotry responds to an even... Sl- to, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. This zealotry, zealotry responds to an even slight manifestation of Hilul Hashem, which is a, you know, a, a desecration of God's name. Zealotry that has its roots in an understanding of the divine inspires the zealot to reach a state of completion, or Shlimut. Behold, I am giving him my covenant of Shalom. Get it? Shlemut, shlemut is, is, is the act of completion or the act of peace. Rabbi Zalman goes on to say, in Tractate Sanhedrin, that's again, I was making mention of this, in Tractate Sanhedrin, our sages enumerate the deeds which, if done by a Jew, warrant zealots smiting him. For example, one who steals a vessel for use in the temple, one who has relations with a Gentile woman, and even a Kohen who serves in the temple while in a state of ritual impurity. All of these are legitimately attacked and killed by zealots. Now, they just give these three examples. The reason for Torah-sanctioned vigilance in these kinds of cases, why? Well, the direct offense committed by the transgressor, who himself has stricken at the heart of the bond uh, between the children of Israel and the Holy One, blessed be he. In other words, the zealot recognizes that the violator, the offender, is someone who has actually come between God and his people. In other words, the zealot recognizes the damage caused by idolatry, by gross idolatry, by um, by 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 a blatant disregard for God's holiness between himself and his people. Rabbi Zalman goes on to conclude, quote, "Our sages explain that the true zealotry, that true zealotry, may be defined as a situation in which the zealot does not inquire of a scholar how to act in the case at hand. Remember, Pinchas didn't ask anyone else, "What should I do about this man Zimri and, and this woman? What should I do about them?" Okay? In fact, uh Rabbi Zalman goes to say, in fact, should he make such an inquiry, a scholar would be bound not to instruct him to take action. Why? 
Sounds rather odd. The very question as to how to respond indicates that the person has not internalized the level of zealotry required to permit his unilateral action. That's what I was trying to bring up before. Pinchas was motivated by an un, uh, unquestioned uh, um, or an unquestioning power or 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 um, re- uh, like I said, righteous indignation within him. He did not question his actions because if he did, the scholar whom he asks is bound to point out that in the asking, in the questioning, you. Pinchas, if I were to use him as my example, you do not have within you the chutzpah needed to follow through with my uh, advice. If I were to tell you, yes, here's the reason why you need to, to why you need to take action. You see my point? The zealot must know that he knows that he knows that he's to take that action. He that he can there, he cannot be second guessing himself. There cannot be question within him as to why he's doing why he should be taking action. So. Let me back up again. The very question as to how to respond indicates that the person has not internalized the level of zealotry required to permit his unilateral action. True zealotry flows naturally from an inability of the person to tolerate the desecration of God's name. He concludes, a well-known Torah dictum states that in situations of desecration of God's name, one does not allot honor that is to say, to, uh, you know, asking. One does not a lot honor even to a rabbi. End quote. Okay. It's about 45 minutes into part A here. I'm going to call it part A. Let me just read this final quote before we move into the second, se- or this, yeah, the second section at the bottom of page four. In my commentary, I make this final conclusion, concluding statement to this uh, section. Zealous for the sake of God's holy name. What a place to be. This was the supremacy of Pinchas' fury. Zealous for God's name. Even though what he did was not considered peaceful in our eyes. You know what I mean? Killing seems to be wrong in every sense of the word. And yet, when you are the instrument of God, if God asks you to kill, then it's killing. It's not murder. It's killing. It is playing the part of God's righteous uh, indignation uh, on, on, a, on a physical level. And so, what he did was not considered peaceful in our eyes. Nevertheless, look at God's response. The Almighty rewarded him with the peace prize as Cohen, as priest. Okay? And with that, let's call it part A. And when we return, we're near the bottom of page four. We'll pick up the reading, the commentary, with a section entitled The Priesthood Established Past and Present Offices. Stay tuned. <laughs> 